Yo, Rustin, you got a sec? Yeah, come on in. Whoa, wait a minute. What's wrong? I'm doing sermon research for this upcoming sermon on the Trinity and... Karen, this thing is complicated, man. The Trinity? Really? Yeah, the infinite, miraculous existence of God himself. Yeah, I'm kind of having a tough time wrapping my head around that. You know, I've been a pastor for like 30 years. Great. And, and this has been so helpful to me. Think of water. You know, water comes in three forms, right? It's a liquid form, but you freeze it up, looks completely different, it's still water. You heat it up, it becomes a vapor, it's still water. Three different forms. Easy. Yeah, Neil, that's modalism. Modal what? Modalism. It's an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople. Come on, I thought even in your simplicity you would remember that. Okay, yeah, then think of it this way. It's like the sun in the sky, right? So you got the star, and then you've got the, the light that it gives, and the heat. Neil, that's Arianism. Aria, Aria what? Arianism. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with Him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. See, that's a bad analogy, Neil. That may be the worst analogy. Alright. It's like that peanut M&M in your ear. Peanut M&M? What are you, 10 years old? How did you do that? I'm telling you, it's one M&M in three distinct parts. It's got the peanut inside, surrounded by chocolate, all encased in a thin candy coating. Neil, your head's got a thick candy coating on it. That's partialism. Par partitionism? No, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of the Godhead, each composing one-third of the divine. I mean, Neil, get with the program. Seriously, bro. Okay, it's like a man. A, a man could be a, a husband, a father, an employer. Modalism again. Okay, think about the layers of an apple. Partialism revision. Okay, an iPhone. That's not even a thing! Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and in Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance that we're compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord and that the deity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Neil, that's it! You're a genius! I don't even know where that came from. I, I think I blacked out. Uh, you know, I told the, uh, the creative arts guys, Neil and Rustin and all them, about, uh, well, six, eight months ago, over the summer, that um, I was going to do a series in the winter here out of John chapter 14, which is where we're at in our journey through John. And it was going to be, you know, on the Trinity. And so they, they came up with that video, which I really did think was cute, you know, and, and wonderful. And some of you have had discussions like that on a, you know, richly theological level, trying to parse out uh, an understanding of the Trinity. And when I saw that video this week, I, I thought to myself, that's actually a perfect setup for what we're going to do over the next four weeks, because this will encourage some of you. That's not what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. Some of you would want to. Some of you uh, want to go into all of the historic creeds and, and try to uh, unmask and understand, you know, the Trinity and all of its intricacies. And maybe someday we'll talk more about that, and certainly we do behind the scenes. But what we're going to do over the next four weeks, I think, is more uh, life-giving, quite frankly. What we're going to do is make our way through John 14, now watch this, and let Jesus tell us about Jesus. 
We're going to allow his words as originally heard uh, 2,000 years ago to penetrate our, our minds and our hearts. And let's understand them in the original context, what he was saying about the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's the order of John 14, the Son, the Father, the Spirit. And then let's see where we end up in our own spiritual lives and our own understanding of God. And so I think you're going to find that kind of refreshing. It doesn't mean that what we just saw in the video aren't important subjects, but we're going to just allow Jesus to tell us about who God is and see where we get with that. And so with that said, and the, the fact that Cactus now and Venue and Chapel are joining us, why don't we bow right now and pray? Father God, I thank you for your word. As you know, God, so often, and these dear people don't always see this, I, I hide behind your word. I, I, I stand up here and Lord, I'm not afraid. I'm certainly not shy, but the only reason being is because I get to talk, hopefully rightly, about what your word reveals. And Lord, if I had to stand up here and just give Jamie's opinion on God or theological issues, that would not be confidence instilling. But God, knowing that you have revealed yourself, as we're going to see in this series, through your son Jesus and him coming to this earth, now that gives me confidence. So God, my only prayer is that we would understand rightly and richly deeply and authentically the words of Jesus over the next four weeks. May your spirit inhabit our discussion and may these words be your words, these understandings be your understandings, I pray in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. Well, it seems that Google Home, the new virtual assistant come out by Google, does not know who Jesus is. It's true. Uh, somebody uh, a few months ago was asking Google Home a bunch of religious questions and Google got it right. And then this dear woman got to who is Jesus and, well, why don't you be the judge? Look up here on the screen. So I'm testing out Google. Hey, Google, who is Allah? According to Wikipedia, in Islamic theology, God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator, sustainer, ordainer, and judge of everything in existence. Hey Google, who is Buddha? According to Wikipedia, Gautama Buddha, also known as Siddhartha Gautama, Shakyamuni Buddha, or simply the Buddha, after the title of Buddha, was an ascetic and sage on whose teachings Buddhism was founded. Hmm, okay. Hey Google, who is Jesus Christ? Sorry, I don't know how to help with that yet. Okay. Hey Google, who is Jesus? Sorry, I'm not sure how to help. Hmm. All right, well, let's try this. Hey Google, who is New Age? According to Wikipedia, New Age is a term applied to a range of spiritual or religious beliefs and practices that developed in Western nations during the 1970s. Okay, let's try it. All right, what about this one? Hey Google, who is Brahman? On the website bbc.co.uk, they say, Hindus believe that there is one true God, the Supreme Spirit, called Brahman. Brahman has many forms, pervades the whole universe, and is symbolized by the sacred syllable Om. Most Hindus believe that Brahman is present in every person as the eternal spirit or soul, called the Atman. 
Let me try this again. Hey Google, who is Jesus Christ? My apologies, I don't understand. Hey Google, who is Jesus? Sorry, I don't know how to help with that yet. Hmm, we probably need to call the programmers. Okay, that was interesting. And that is interesting, isn't it? I, I, some of you are wondering if that's real. I, I've run it down, it is real. There's been eight million views of that video and Todd Starnes, who's an investigative reporter, actually ran this thing down and checked it out himself. And whether they've changed it or not to this day, because it's all about programming, who knows? But he actually contacted Google and said, hey, what's up? But why can't you guys answer who Jesus is? And uh, this was their answer, and I quote, it says, the reason that Google Assistant didn't respond with information about who Jesus is or who Jesus Christ is wasn't out of disrespect, but instead to ensure respect. And that's what I thought too. I, I thought, well, what does that mean? Does that mean then when you answered who Hindu, what Hinduism is about and, and Islam and all that, that you're showing disrespect? No, I think that Google just doesn't know who Jesus is. Let's just go with that. And here's my point. I'm not sure that Google Home is alone. I'm really not. I talk to a lot of people uh, in my world, obviously, about who God is and in more particular who Jesus is. And the answers that I hear are not answers that would surprise many of you. I hear things like, well, Jesus was a great man. He was a religious leader. He was a wisdom sage, a prophet. Obviously, there's some who say he was a myth. And then I hear those who are maybe inside the fold, and the most common answer I get from people is basically parroting the creeds when they say, oh, Jesus, he was the son of God. That's his usual answer I get. But when I get that answer, I wonder to myself, I don't usually push people, that might be awkward, but I wonder, do you know what you mean by that? Could you explain that intelligently to somebody else how God has a son and what that means and who is that son and what is his nature and what did he come here to do and why is he important? Why is he the center, not just the founder, but the center of our Christian faith? Those are the questions that we want to ask and answer in this series. And here's my encouragement to you as we allow Jesus himself to guide us in answering these questions, we're going to get a lot more answers than Google Home gives when we ask the question, who is Jesus or who is Jesus Christ? And so as I said earlier, what I want to do in this series is allow Jesus to tell us about Jesus. I want you to try your best, Cactus and Venue and Chapel, try your best to dispense over the next four weeks what you've heard on the History Channel specials. Try to dispense what you have read in the Dan Brown novels. Try to dispense what you have, have read in New York Times best-selling books. Watch this. Even try to dispense just for now what you know about from the creeds from the things that you've read over the centuries that have come down to us about Jesus. I wanna just get all of that out of our minds and I wanna go back to the beginning when 2,000 years ago, Jesus uttered words for the very first time about himself and then who the Father is and then what this Holy Spirit is about. And I want us to look at those in a very fresh way, in a very linear way and ask the question, who is God? 
Now, we read the first six verses, or you read the first six verses here in other campuses and venues uh, together yourself. So those are the verses we're going to park in front of today. And just to review, uh, there's basically a fourfold progression that Jesus walks through in these opening verses of John chapter 14 that build one upon the other. And just so you get a, a sense of the action of Jesus' words, here's what he says. He begins by saying, believe in God and then believe also in me. Strange statement from a Jewish context because most of these disciples were had a Jewish background. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he moves on in verse two to talk about my father in a very, very personal way. And he talks about how in his father's house there are many rooms and if it were not so, I would have told you and then I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'm gonna come again and bring you to myself. Two verses about my father. And then by this point, the disciples are thoroughly confused. And Thomas, the big doubter, that's what we're gonna call him, the big doubter, asks a pushback question that essentially says, we'll get to this in a minute, we don't get it. What are you trying to tell us? And then that leads into the very fourth movement of Jesus' opening salvo here in John 14, a great I am statement. This is the fourfold progression. Believe my father, Thomas's question, I am. And contained in this progression is no less than three key things that Jesus reveals. That's what we're calling this series, Reveal, because it's all about Jesus unveiling some things about God. And in these opening verses, he reveals three things about himself that you and I need to understand. And the first thing is this, and that is that Jesus claims here in John 14, a totally unique relationship with the Father. Just bear with me here because we're going to try to understand these words as woodenly as possible. Stay true to the text. Jesus claims a totally unique relationship with the Father. So let's very quickly add up what Jesus is saying in these opening verses. He begins, as we've noted, by saying, believe in God, believe also in me. Here's what you need to know about that phrase. There's two ways to take it a kind of modern-day American way or a first-century Jewish way. In the modern-day American way, we might hear Jesus saying, you know, hey, you guys need to believe in God, and by the way, just trust me as I tell you about God. We might say that to a friend or a co-worker. Hey, you need to believe and just trust me as I tell you these things. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying believe in God, and by the way, just trust the words I'm saying. He is putting himself on par with God the Father here. Most woodenly translated, he's saying, believe God, believe also identically on par with in me. He is putting himself as an equal with God the Father, a very unique relationship with the Father. And then if there's any doubt on that, in verse two, as we noted, he goes on to say, in my father's house. And then he goes on to describe this house. He talks about dwelling places or rooms in this house and how he's gonna go prepare a place for us and then come again and take us there. And here's what the disciples would have gotten 2,000 years ago. They would have thought, it sounds like you've been there, Jesus. I mean, this sounds like a place that you're familiar with. 
You're talking about heaven, obviously, and your father's house in heaven, God's place, and you're making it sound like you know that place intimately, and that you've been there, and that you're going to take us there. That's a a pretty unique relationship with the father. And then in verse 6, we'll talk about this in a minute, Jesus gets to the mountaintop of all this, and he says, no one comes to the father but through me. Well, that's a unique relationship. And if there's any doubt, look at verse 7. He says, if you have known me, you have known my Father also. Again, these things were such radical statements that Jesus made that kind of presented this view of him and the Father who is God that the Pharisees accused him of claiming to be God. We'll get to that in a minute. And picked up stones in order to kill him because one of the penalties for claiming to be God in the Old Testament was death by stoning. And what you guys need to know is that though Jesus is bringing this idea of this very unique relationship with the Father to a head here in John 14, he had been saying this stuff all along. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, these chapters are all one talk, if you will, one long conversation that Jesus has with the disciples in the upper room about a few days before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, and then resurrection. So this is the very last week of Jesus' life. And for the last three years, Jesus has been with the disciples, teaching them about himself. And what you need to know is that he's been saying this stuff all along. Very early on in John, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, meaning myself, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in a like matter. Just give me a head nod that this is a unique relationship that's being talked about here. And then verse 17, he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Whoa. And then again, if there's any doubt, John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. From start to finish, gang, see this. Jesus consistently claimed a unique relationship with the Father. Watch this. One that sounded eternal, meaning not limited to this time and space, and even equal, symbiotic in nature. So eternal and equal was what people heard when Jesus talked about him and the Father. And now, only now, are we bumping up against what theologians for the last 1,900 years have called the Trinity. Because now you can see, based on Jesus' teachings here, that we started to formulate an understanding of him, that the New Testament writers would formulate an understanding of him that would lead us to this understanding of the Trinity. Look at how John would put it in John 1, verses 1 and 2, in this same gospel that records all these words of Jesus. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning Jesus. So John right away is telling us that this guy who has a unique relationship with the Father is God himself come to earth. The writer of Hebrews would affirm the same thing. He says, But of the Son, meaning Jesus, the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
So Jesus is called God with a capital G here. And then if there's any doubt, Titus 2 verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As if this were not clear enough, the New Testament will go on to describe Jesus as eternal, omnipresent, meaning everywhere present, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, the creator of the earth, the sustainer of the earth, the forgiver of our sins, and the judger of all humankind. I don't know about you, but when I hear descriptions like that, you're not describing my old man. You're not describing my wife or my neighbor or even the most holy person I know. Those are words reserved for God. And so please see, this is really important that you understand this. This idea of Jesus being God come to earth and then the Father also being God because God referred to his Father appears 260 times in the Bible, so that one's clear. But then there only being one God, because the first and second commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 4, says that you shall have no other gods before you. I, the Lord, am one. So there's this idea of one God, but Jesus being God, and then God the Father being God, as we'll see in a couple weeks, the Holy Spirit being God, this idea of three in one is not something that a bunch of wild-eyed theologians came up with a couple of centuries after the time of Jesus. No, this flew or flowed very naturally and progressively right from the words of Jesus. If you don't hear anything else today, please see this because we're taking a fresh look at this stuff, guys. Our understanding of God as we have it today this Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all being equally God and yet separate, distinct persons, but one God, a mystery indeed, flows from the statements of Jesus. You're looking at him today. I and the Father are one. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And even his most famous statement in John 8, verse 58, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. I exist as God. That was the claim of Jesus. And so our job as his followers or anybody interested in spiritual things is simply to look at the words of Jesus, the rest of the biblical data, and try to make sense of them as best we can. And when we add up what Jesus says about himself here in John 14, this totally unique relationship, that's the starting place, combined with the other things that Jesus says and then what the rest of the biblical writers say, we end up with this picture of one God existing for all of eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so now, it is only at this point, and only at this point, that we can begin to understand the second key claim that Jesus makes here in the opening verses of John 14. And it's this, and that is that Jesus tells us that the son revealed, because he's revealing himself here, is both Savior and Lord. I'm telling you, gang, this is what the disciples got in that moment, is that when Jesus made these statements, they said, wait a second, it sounds like you're the Savior we've been waiting for, and it seems like you're claiming to be the Lord of the universe. You're saying, where's that? Look at verse 2 
Uh, Jesus says this. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I need you to, to, to try to dig with me on this one. I know this is a lot more uh, in-depth theology than we might usually talk about here, but, but this is worth digging into. Um, Jesus, obviously, in the first part of verse 2 here, is talking about heaven. Give me a head now that you all get that. My father's house, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Nobody disagrees that that's talking about heaven. But what does it mean? I need you to wrestle with this. When he says... For I go to prepare a place for you. There's two options that the Bible experts give us. He could be continuing this theme right now of heaven. And basically saying, I'm going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you. But, but here's the pushback on that. And that is that it doesn't seem to make much sense. What do you mean prepare a place for us in heaven? Is he going to get our bed ready? Is he going to clean up our room? Is he going to furnish the thing for us? I mean, read Revelation 20 and 21. Heaven's already there. It's already waiting. Streets of gold, the whole shebang. It's all there. There's nothing to get ready for us. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to interpret this as Jesus saying, I'm going to go get heaven ready for you. So what else could it mean? Second option, this will blow your mind. Could it be that what Jesus is saying here, remember I told you that John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is all done in the upper room and that Jesus is about ready to go and go where? To the cross. He is about ready to go to the cross where he will die a sinner's death and take on the sins of the world upon himself so that anybody who believes and trusts in him will find full forgiveness of their sins and attain a place in eternity with him. He's going to prepare a place for you. See, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying here, heaven's a real place and I'm going right now to secure your place in heaven if you will but believe in me. Colin Cruz of the Tyndale Commentary Series, which is a really solid Bible, Bible commentary series, says this. He says, when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, we should not think of him returning to heaven and having arrived there, setting about the construction of rooms for his disciples to occupy. Rather, we should recognize that it, was by, that it was by his very going, by his betrayal, crucifixion, and exaltation, that he made it possible for us to dwell in the presence of God. So I think that's exactly what it's saying. He's foreshadowing here what he's going to do on our behalf. He's preparing the way for us to get to heaven. Jesus is telling us here that he is the long-awaited savior of our very souls. And as you'll see in a minute, the disciples would get that in very short order. But before that, real quickly, look at verse 3, because he says another thing. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, those are rich words. And, and, and all I want you to try to picture or understand is that if you were in that room 2,000 years ago and Jesus said that to you, what would you think about him? He's claiming in a unique relationship with the Father. He's laying out kind of cryptically that he's the Savior of all humankind, the Messiah. 
And then he says, and you know, if I do die and then come back, I'm going to you know, go and, and receive you to myself and take you eventually to where, where I'm going to be. Now, again, all I know is that as I try to empty my mind of all the stuff I've been taught over the years and just read this stuff afresh for the first time, I would think to myself, you're making some claims that most normal human beings would not make. I mean, I've had people die. My dear mother just died, as most of you know, and, and I believe my mom is in eternity with the Lord because she was a believer in him, but I have no illusion that my mom someday is going to come back to take me to where she is. Some people think that, but there's no biblical foundation for things like that. My mom does not have that kind of power. So when Jesus made that statement that he's going to come back from the dead and receive his followers to be with him, here's my point. I think only the Lord of the universe could make a claim like that. Amen? I think only someone who has victory over death and has this unique relationship with the Father, maybe even a second person of the Trinity coexisting with the Father for all of eternity could make a claim like that. The disciples were starting to feel it. They're starting to feel that this guy is a lot more than what most people think. We got God on our hands here. He's making claims of lordship. And if you're doubting it at all at this point, let me just let you know, you're in good company. Because not all the disciples were feeling that. Remember I mentioned earlier the big doubter. What's his name? Thomas, yeah. Don't name your kid Thomas. I mean, I don't know. Just know I'm teasing. You can, some of you have that name and you live up to that namesake. Thomas, the big doubter. I actually love Thomas. I mean, he's the most critical thinker of all the disciples. He's rather cynical. He doesn't buy things easily. So look what he says in verse five. It says, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how do we know the way? Now, what is Thomas saying here? I read this and what Thomas is saying. He's saying, essentially, if all this is true, Jesus, and I'm not really sure it is, then what does this say about the pathway to God and eternal life? I mean, come on, Jesus. We've been taught as good Jews that it is through the law and obedience to the law that heaven is attained. You're either good enough or you're not good enough, and that, that means whether you're in or out. But you seem to be suggesting that this all more centers on you and faith in you, and I'm confused by that. What are you saying about the way? Because this does not compute. I think that's what Thomas is pushing back on. And guys, it is at this point that Jesus now goes for the jugular. He pulls out that velvet hammer. <laughs> He's about ready to smack the disciples with the truth of it all. And look at what he says. But essentially, this is for point three. He's going to tell them that it is through faith in him and only through faith in him that we know God. Look at verse six. This is the mountaintop of this entire opening statement of Jesus. He says, I, in response to Thomas, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, guys, bear with me here for a second. This verse is quoted like a club by a lot of Christians. Have you ever noticed that? 
You're with somebody on an airplane and they're with you for four hours and they're in the window seat and they can't get away from you. And you're like, do you know Jesus? Oh, no, really. You want to talk about Jesus? No. Okay, good. We're going to talk about him right now. And I got to tell you, John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You ready to believe? See, I don't know why more people don't believe when we do that, right? <laughs> I mean, we use this as a club to beat people over the head. And so when people say that Christians are the, like the most exclusive people on planet Earth and we're narrow-minded, I can understand that because we yank this thing out of context and beat people over the head with it. But today, let's understand it in context, shall we? You see, what people need to understand is that the backdrop to this is a very unique relationship with the Father, point one. The backdrop to this is Jesus basically saying, I love you so much that I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to go to this cross and pave the way as your Savior. The backdrop to this is Jesus saying, I'm going to come again because I love you so much and I want you so much with me in eternity. I'm going to come again as Lord and receive you to myself. And then after all that, Thomas says, hey, we don't get it. Instead of saying, what are you, dumb? Jesus says, okay, I know you don't get it. I I get that, Thomas. Let me spell it out for you. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what you're looking for. And it is through faith in me that you come to the Father. So I think if more people heard it like that, (laughs) that they might start to understand that these aren't fighting words of Jesus. Watch this. These are inviting words of Jesus. Eight times in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins a statement with I am. Many of you didn't know that. He makes eight I am statements. He says in John 5, I am the bread of life. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. He ends John 8 by saying before Abraham was, I am. In John 10, he says, I am the door or the gate for the sheep. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 15, he says, I am the vine. We're going to study that this spring. I am the vine or the stump or the trunk of the tree. And then here in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. You know, again, what many Christians miss is that the the, the thing that all of those I am statements have in common, and and it's like super, super life-giving, is that they're all are Jesus's way of telling us that he is the pathway to knowing God in any real and meaningful way. I mean, every one of those are positive things. Do we understand? Only Christians could make them into fighting words. He he says, I I am the bread. Bread is sustenance. Any of you going to eat after church today? Almost all of you will. And you'll enjoy it and you'll feel sustained. And, And Jesus saying, I'm the bread when it comes to God. I'm the light. None of us really like darkness, especially when we can't see it all. So Jesus says, I'm the one to light your path. I'm the door to get you somewhere. I'm the shepherd to guide you. I'm the vine from which you should grow. Every one of those are life-giving statements. Jesus is telling us here that he is. He says, I am the way you're looking for. And maybe now this will answer the question that even some well-meaning Christians have, because I know how you guys think, and I empathize, I get it. You think, why do we have to be such Jesus-obsessed people. I mean, some Christians ask that question because it's awkward talking about Jesus in in modern culture. I I think the reason that Google Home didn't want to give an answer to who Jesus is, is that they didn't want to go there. Amen. 
It's safe to talk about a definition of Allah or Brahman or, or, or some New Age theology or what have you, or Moses. It's kind of vogue to talk about those things. But try to talk about Jesus, and now people start to get a little bit threatened. And yet, over and over again, our Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, again, is not just the founder of Christianity. That'd be a nice intellectual thing to say. Now, he is the way the truth, and the life. And without him and faith in him, you have no life with God, according to Jesus. And so maybe now some of you can see why we're so God-obsessed. But here's where we need to turn the tables on people. I actually love it. I'll be flying Monday, what's well, tomorrow, out to see dad, check up on dad in Ohio. And I'll be in row 14, seat A, exit row seat, and uh, I'll have somebody next to me. You can pray for that person right now because <laughs> I will strike up a conversation and I won't be pushy because eventually they'll say to me, it happens every time because I look like a business guy because I dress nice and they'll say to me, oh, by the way, what do you do? And I go, I got you right now. I will tell you what I do. And I'm sensitive. I can tell when they don't want to talk because sometimes I'll say, hey, I pastor a church and they'll go, oh, that's nice as long as you're happy. You know, that type of answer. And, but other times they'll say, wow, that just doesn't really compute right now. And, and so, you know, you seemed normal. And so I'm just I'm not getting that. And, and, and then I'll be off to the races there. And, and, and I will eventually bring up, you know, the idea of Jesus as the core of our faith. Because they'll say to me, why do you do what you do? And I'll just, again, they ask me, so I'll just say, well, I gotta tell you, first 18 years of my life, nothing, nada. Like nothing, no lights on, elevator not going to the top on a spiritual level, nothing. But then I got sabotaged when I was 18 by God. And I went from black and white to technicolor. My entire view of spiritual things changed so much so that I, I couldn't help but be a pastor. And they'll go, wow, that, that, that's kind of wild. And I'll say, yeah, it is. And it all comes down to who? Jesus. And eventually somebody will say, well, gosh, that just sounds so exclusive and narrow-minded. Like, you really believe he's the only way. Here's my answer to that. Now, you guys should be writing this down because this is really good stuff. Because I've been doing this for a long time. Here's the answer to that one. And that is, I say, oh, no, 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 you misunderstand. This is not exclusive at all. In fact, believing in Jesus, what he said, is the most inclusive thing ever to hit planet Earth. And they go, well, how's that? And I'll say, because it's a universal call. He said, come ye, come all. He went after Matthew at the tax collector's booth, Zacchaeus climbing a tree, the woman caught in adultery. He was found anywhere but in church when he was on this earth. And he went after everybody, including even the religious leaders who were the hardest sell. Jesus' call was never meant to be exclusive. It was always meant to be a universal call open to everybody. And somehow, Christians, you and I, we got to get that message out. Because people hear this exclusive, they, they see it as like a country club, where, where if you're spiritual enough, you're in. And it's only for a select few. Here's more what Jesus was trying to say. This is a hospital with universal health care that works. This is not Obamacare. This is Jesus' care that he gives to you and I. I had to dig that in. And, and, and it works. And so some of you don't like universal health care. Well, I'm sorry. Jesus came to bring that. He came to bring something that he offers to everyone. 
And not everybody's going to take him up on that. I'm not talking about universalism here. I don't believe that. No, but he offers it to everybody. Even my hardcore Calvinist friends, I think I saw Dr. Fred, even my hardcore Calvinist friends uh, believe that there is a universal call given to everyone who can respond as human beings to Jesus. I, I think that more of us need to start thinking of him like that. You know, for years, I have made fun of the Star Wars mantra, may the force be with you. It didn't help that it came out when I was in seminary. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, really passionate. Not that I'm not passionate now, but if you think I'm, you wouldn't want to be back then. And uh, I was just very judgmental and, and very intellectually uh, arrogant and all of that. And so when the Star Wars films came out, I was like, the force be with you. What kind of pamby-mamby thing is that? You know, I'm like, that's ridiculous, you know, and that's not defined and da 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 and typical American thing. And, and for years, I made fun of that. Until a while ago, when I read a quote from Time magazine in an article that appeared almost 20 years ago, it was an interview with George Lucas, the founder of Star Wars, and he cited why he came up with this idea of the force. And it kind of softened me to what he was trying to do. Look up here on the screen, here's his direct quote. He says, I put the force in the movie Star Wars in order to awaken a certain kind of spirituality in young people. I wanted to make it so that young people would begin to ask questions. He says, not having enough interest in the mysteries of life to ask the question, is there a God or is there not a God? This for me is the worst thing that can happen. I think you should have an opinion about that. He goes on to say, or at least you should be saying, I'm looking, I'm curious about this and I'm gonna continue to look until I can find an answer. And if I can't find an answer, then I'll die trying. He says, I think it's important to have a belief system and to have a faith. <laughs> I, I thought that I agree with. How about you? I, I think I see it a little bit differently now. I think that George Lucas's force is kind of like AA's higher power. AA will say that they begin with the idea of a higher power because that's where most people, especially stuck in addiction, need to start. But, but they hope that people progress beyond that and start to understand God a little bit more intricately and thoroughly and maybe even to the words of Jesus. And, and, and I think that Lucas might be onto something here. I think we live in a culture now, in fact, I know we do, in which people are interested in spiritual things. And the message that you and I have for our seeking friends around us, now last thing I'll say, and then we'll go to the communion table, is this that the message we have is how we relate to God, how we view him, what we believe about him does matter. It matters greatly. And, and that's all we're asking people around us is are you willing to have an intelligent, non-defensive conversation about who God is? And maybe next time you have a conversation with them, can I just plead with you to do this? Just share two things with them. Share your story, as I've said to you a thousand times, because that's the least threatening thing you can do. No one can argue with your story. It's your experience. So share your journey with them. And then if you share anything else, why don't you share the words of Jesus in context? Somebody asked you this week, you know, anything about spiritual saying, I'll tell you, I heard the most amazing sermon on Sunday. I go to this church called Scottsdale Bible Church. And, 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 and we looked at the words of Jesus in a fresh way, and we realized Jesus was just saying three things 
in these opening words. He has a unique relationship with the Father that tells us something very special about who he is. And who is he? He's the Savior and the Lord. And what does that mean? It means that it is through faith in him that we come to know God. I think people are thirsty for that. I know you're thirsty for that. I'm thirsty for that. Aren't you thankful for our Savior? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the very words of Jesus that when I look at them afresh and anew, become life-giving to my soul. They make sense. I understand you rightly. And Lord, I'm grateful that you allow us to do this. God, I pray that as we each give thought to these words and Lord, even some of the questions like Thomas had that might uh, be evoked in our hearts and minds, may we not be afraid of those, God. May we ask those to each other. May we ask those to you. And Lord, may we then receive the answers that you have for us with joy, with understanding, with faith. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.